This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Einstein & Gogo is presented by Squarespace, a scientific way to create a beautiful website with designer templates, an easy-to-use interface, and a free domain name. To start your free trial, go to squarespace.com. Use offer code RRR to save 10%. Squarespace, triple R sponsors. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein & Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy and for their lovely remarks, actually. I, I think I gave Doolittle 50 bucks before uh, his show, and it's paid off. Uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to see you here, buddy. It's, uh, it's been a few weeks. It has been a while. It's always yeah. good to be back. Dr. Jen, Good welcome. morning, Dr. Shane. Thanks. Thanks for what? <laughs> for allowing me to join you on this fine morning on the wireless. Uh, you're always very, very welcome here on the wireless. Dr. Crystal? Good morning. It's been such, a new haircut. It's been such a big week in science. I had to go out and get a new haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think we noticed, did you? Um, yes, well, a little bit less than the previously. Ah, uh, well, you Can know, you got to freshen up for spring. Yeah, okay. Yeah, spring mm. into spring. Fair enough. Anyway, there's the science show, folks. We're going to mix it up a little bit today. I know normally this would be where we do our news segment, but we do have a special guest in the studio today, Nobel laureate Peter Doherty. It is the 20th anniversary this past week from when he won his Nobel Prize. Peter, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thanks. Great to be here, as always. Now, now we, we've had you on a few times before, so it's, yes. good, it's good to have you back. I thought today, rather than uh, what we've done in the past, which would be to talk about what you won the Nobel Prize about, we're just going to ban that topic and talk about everything else. So Anything. You're cool with that? <laughs> um, I mean, one of the things that I, I've sort of always wondered is, you know, ac- academia is so competitive. You know, when you, when you came back having won the Nobel, how did things change? I mean, did you were there a few people in the departments and that that you didn't like that you kind of... You know, gave me a bit of a look like, huh? No, <laughs> not really. I mean, not, no, not at all. I mean, we, we've sort of been pretty well funded since I came back. I came back with a couple of very talented young investigators, mm-hmm. Steve Turner and Nicole Legruta, and we recruited Catherine Kizieska, who was just out of a PhD, and they've all done fantastically well, and uh, we've had a great program. We've had one of these NHMRC program grants. We've had something like uh, six uh, principal investigators, chief investigators, or whatever you call them, and, uh, and we've done pretty well. We've been reasonably well-funded and done some great science, and now I'm kind of at the end of it because it's 50 years this year since I mm-hmm. posted published my first research paper Gee, and, yeah. uh, in the Australian Veterinary Journal. <laughs> so I didn't start at the top or anything. It's a, and um, that's, uh, that's great. When, when, when you look back at that particular first paper, did you find the citations attributed to it went up after you were after <laughs> No, not really. I mean, no one cites that paper. But I, I remember being excited way, way back when I got my first reprint request card. Oh, yeah, now, yeah. Most of the people here are too young to remember no. reprint request I re- cards. I remember those. <laughs> but, I, but that was a big, big, big moment. Someone had actually read something I'd published. Yeah, well, <laughs> well once I, I, I do remember a while back I, I had a filing cabinet it was just filled with reprints. It was like this golden filing cabinet. Yes, then, yes, then, then there came the day where I shredded it all. It felt weird. It was, yeah. These things were highly prized. Well, they were kind of serial pests who used to travel around the world with, with their briefcases, leather briefcases, full of their own reprints, and then they would give them to you. <laughs> and you'd have to surreptitiously discard these things because you don't need any enemies in science. You've got enough anyway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, I mean, give us an idea of what, um, what changed post the Nobel in terms 
terms of your real career because I mean this this is obviously the the, the highest accolade that, that a scientist can get but we're all in this competitive environment for grants everything else and so forth I mean what what changed for you after the Nobel well you know what happens after the Nobel you have a very busy year the next year because mm. everyone's trying to get get the guy who's just won this thing and then then there are various you get asked to a lot of things because if you can put a Nobel Prize winner on the list and you're trying to get money out of government or someone you, it helps a bit yeah, right. and doesn't matter whether they're still bre- they have to be still breathing <laughs> uh, they, they can have Alzheimer's and after a, a very quickly you learn to avoid that sort of event yep, uh, right. for various reasons unless it's somewhere really truly spectacular but usually that's not enough of a seduction um, so uh, what really changed it for me was being Australian of the year after mm, right. the Nobel Prize because at that stage the Australian of the year was selected by a few upper middle class people sitting around and drinking a bottle of Grange in Sydney it wasn't yep. the sort of Miss America contest now and, and so I was asked to be Australian of the year when I was still living in the States and um, I'd kind of left Australia after a bit of a fight at the Australian National University, haven't got involved in university politics since, quite frankly, and, uh, and I, I, I wasn't coming back, quite frankly. And uh, that year is the Australian of the Year where I talked to a lot of people, saw a lot of people and saw some really terrific people doing great things. Uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I can be helpful. Mm. And hey. I mean, I mean, you must you must get get sick of the requests for uh, all the the talks and so forth in an ongoing fashion. At some stage, I mean, you, you you're doing them quite. It gets in the way of the work, doesn't it, to some degree? Well, um, I, I've tried to do the sort of public communication of science and try to talk for science and speak up for evidence-based reality and evidence-based policy, mm. which I think is tremendously important. So that's got me into a bit um, trying to defend the climate scientists against some of the ridiculous attacks and the absurd uh, media coverage in some elements of our print media particularly. Mm. And uh, that's... Uh, that's meant I've, I've sort of been out there on the public stage a little. Uh, but in the end analysis, I've also written uh, five books since mm, I yeah. got back here. And uh, that's, again, trying to communicate and talk about science to people and even people who don't like science much. My latest book, The Knowledge Wars, really is a book about science for people who don't like science, trying to tell them what it's about and how it works. How do you start a book like that? Uh, you... you <laughs> The same way you try to do everything, you, you you try to be absolutely truthful. And in this case, you don't put any big words into it. I mean, the biggest word in that book was epistemology, and the editor took it out. It was about the only thing they did take out. Uh, so there's no science in it. It's just talking about science and the and the strengths and weaknesses of science and fraud in science and mm. um, you know, uh, denial and scepticism and and manufactured narrative and deliberate ignorance which uh, we can see a lot in the media in some cases mm. so and now you, you you have been fairly involved in uh, some of the climate stuff and i guess this is one of the the things that comes with with the nobel is the ability to speak out and be heard more yes. on different topics I, I mean how do you how do you see that situation going now because it does seem as though we're still in a you know i mean not not to bring donald trump into the show but you know we are in a situation where a lot of this stuff is still being pushed back on very firmly at the highest levels. It, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, the majority of people in Australia want action on climate change, we're told. 
And uh, yet when um, Tony Abbott was able to totally uh, demonise the carbon tax. I mean, we can't have action on climate change actually without it costing us something, quite frankly, and we mm. have, to, have to be honest about that. That's very difficult for politicians to do, of course. And uh, I, I've got some sympathy for them. I mean, they live in this terrible uh, rapid news cycle and it's hard to make reasoned statements and get reasoned positions out there. In fact, I, you do get the feeling a lot of the public discussions being trivialised, even, even though uh, some things are working much better through online discussion. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we don't have total editing and control by newspaper editors anymore. But it's it, it, it's a tough space. And uh, I'm you know I'm not a climate scientist, but the, the implications of climate science are all about biology. It's all about biomedicine and human life and all life, in fact. And I started as a vet, so I've got a pretty a broad experience and interest in life itself and uh, that's where we're worried we're not worried about what happens to the to the rocks god for god's sake i mean they can withstand pretty high temperatures we're worried about, <laughs> worried about what happens to us and what happens to life and plants and, yeah. and animals and the, the oceans Mm, indeed. So coming back to your theme in your book, The Knowledge Wars, um, you know, we've got a lot of commentary at the moment around how we're living in this post-factual world and, and where you know, the opinions of experts are, are devalued and you know, we have you know, global leaders coming out and saying, I don't care what the experts say, this is what I think. Um, how is it that in going through the process of writing The Knowledge Wars, you know, where, where have you come to on how to be effective in that science communication, given that facts don't seem to resonate um, with the public? How do you build those narratives that do? That was the whole point of writing The Knowledge Wars, to try and talk to people and tell them, anyone, anyone, anywhere, where you can go to get decent information. That's what I was trying to do. It was the fifth in a series of five books. I'd pretty much said everything I've got to say about this, and that really rounded it out. And at the moment, I'm not writing about that at all. I'm actually writing a book on tourism. (laughs) (laughs) So The the Incidental Tourist, perhaps, is is maybe the title. And uh, and that's been kind of fun. So I'm I'm writing a bit bit of a fun book at the moment. Uh, But it's 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 hard, and uh, and and the other thing that really is disturbing is that our governments, uh, particularly the federal government, has hollowed out a lot of its professional expertise in its public service. Mm-hmm. It used to be that you had a sort of pretty frank and fearless federal public service. Unfortunately, a lot of that expertise is gone. The, the dismantling of it goes way back, and it really began with Hawke, in fact. So it's not one side of politics or the other. But that really worries me. And again, as you say, we live in a world where opinion resonates, and people really sometimes don't grapple with the nature of evidence. They, they know the evidence of how much their gas bill is and so forth, but not necessarily, they don't really understand how it is, for instance, the science goes about putting together a story. And that's why The Knowledge Wars was written. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'm really keen to follow on from that point because I think, you know, scientists are providing evidence all the time for certain issues, but that's clearly not resonating a lot. No. And we've got things like the conversation, which I know you're obviously involved with. I guess my question is, you know, do scientists really need to th- rethink quite a lot their approach to things? Because if we just keep bombarding people with facts, clearly it's not resonating. Whereas if you look at, you know, other areas, they use tactics like marketing and, and, and all sorts of ways to get their message across. And of course, that's traditionally been frowned upon by scientists doing that. But it does raise the question, do we need to be thinking about doing something like that? Because otherwise, yeah, how do we get our message across? Well, I, I encourage all young scientists to, to get involved 
in the social media at <coughs> least. Uh, you know, the job of the scientist is to do science. The job of science is, is to, to make discoveries that, it, that illuminate our understanding and to, and to look for solutions to problems. I mean, the engineers, for instance, are more down the solutions to problems, but we've also got that job. So that's our job, to do that. And that means we have to work at it, and it's bloody hard, as you know. I mean, it's really very demanding type of activity. So the communication things is sidelined. But I think we've all got a bit of spare time in our lives. We can all tweet. We can all do social media. We can all, if we're working with something that's visual, try to get it on YouTube. That's a good start. We can write for something like The Conversation, which is an academic blog. But beyond that, you need a totally different type of operation and you need to bring in people from things like advertising and and marketing and the way we can the only way to do that is either you do it through large institutions but they're kind of selling themselves universities or you do it through scientific organizations that have, have enough resources and sophistication to do that mm. and unfortunately most of our scientific organizations don't have enough resources the, in America you have the Federation of American Societies of Experimental Biology we don't have all our biological science together in a way that allows it to do that. And it w might be a good idea if we did and we started to get lobbyists into Canberra, people into political offices and all that sort of thing. We do a bit of it, but not much. Mm. Peter, it seems to me, and we've talked about this many times on the show before, that the seriousness with which we take the need for good communication out of science is is not there. And I'll, give, I'll just throw two examples of you where I think we've, we've almost failed in the way over the years. One is with regards to how we talk about stem cell therapies and the fact that there now are businesses popping up all over Australia to offer fake stem cell therapies, which are, you know, nothing at, at best, dangerous at worst. And the second is around vaccinations, where we've, we've been pretty quiet about the, the amazing benefits of vaccinations, and it's allowed some free, you know, landscape for those combating it to come in and, and take hold. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, well, it's a difficult space, and, and because people get very convinced of various issues, and there are things online that they can see that reinforce, we all look for things that reinforce our opinion, and really that's what science does actually it, it mm. makes you makes you obey rules that stops you just doing stuff that reinforces your own opinion and that's that's what the knowledge was addresses to some extent but the the, the issue is um is, is to get effective policy i think uh, you won't change everybody's opinion we, we've got reasonably effective policy on on vaccination because of the denial of welfare payments to be and that's yep. actually been something we should congratulate our parliament about mm. uh, it started with michael waldridge uh, well back uh, on the conservative side and both polit political parties have followed that down D more difficult with climate change because here you've got big money involved in vaccination it's not big money it's 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 opinion that, that you're, you're fighting. So um, we've just got to try and get good information out there, but in a way that's much more palatable. And, and I think, you know, people writing kids' books that address some of these things, uh, trying to write it into fiction, for instance, is, is one way of doing it, getting stories out there, which is why I've sort of been going down this road. Mm. Part of the reason I'm doing that is to get out of the way. I mean, old scientists like me, and science is for the young, it definitely is for the <laughs> yeah. no, we, have to, we have to make space. 
Dr. Jen, over to you. You were talking about, you know, science being for the young, and that's what I'm really interested in. I'm fortunate enough to get to have a lot of time in front of our current young researchers at, at master's level. What do you think are the key things we need to make sure this next generation of scientists are learning and are going to bring to this world where we all agree we need to get different science messages out there? There needs to be stories, there needs to be people who are willing to be advocates. You know, what are the key things we need to make sure our next scientists have and learn? I, I think, you know, the people who go into science and who always a lot of people go, a fair number of people go into science. Some are going to be successful and some aren't. That's always been the case. It's a very tough game and uh, others end up doing other things uh, and that's worked okay in the past. We need a lot of people with basic science training out there. We need great high school science teachers. We need people in politics with science training. We need all sorts of people. But if you're thinking about the sort of scientist who's going to go on with science that has some talent, you don't need to motivate them towards the science. They're passionate about it. They love to do science. If they're experimentalists, sometimes they can be too passionate about being <laughs> at the bench and not passionate enough about writing. So the first thing you have to get to them is the importance of looking at their data very, very closely and writing it up and writing. That's, that's the first thing. And writing is not something that necessarily comes all that easily to some young scientists. And some of them don't have English as a starting language. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can get help with that with uh, uh, professionals who help with science writing. The, then the next thing is, is how much of their time or, or how much of their effort they're willing to put out there to doing other outreach type things. And some are very passionate about it. For instance, Misty Jenkins, who's a, uh, an indigenous, uh, has an indigenous background. Uh, one of our trainees did wonderfully well with us and then with Gillian Griffith in Cambridge uh, back here. And she now has a laboratory at the Walter and Isaac Hall Institute. But she's heavily involved in sort of the indigenous issues. Mm -hmm. And she can bring an utterly unique perspective, really, because she's a very good scientist. And so mm -hmm. she can discuss things that a lot of people in that community will not be so familiar with. So, so if you, if you can pick a target and, and spend a bit of your time doing that, that's great. Not everyone has these characteristics, and if they haven't, and they're not good communicators and they're stiff, maybe you know, forget it, don't do it. Mm. But if you're good at it, uh, you know, give a bit of time to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Peter, you mentioned before that you know, it's just come around the 50 years since your first paper. I mean, you would have seen a huge amount of change in not just the technology, but also the way science is done, in a sense, um, in the oh, yeah. period. I mean, uh, if you're, talk you're talking about the, the sort of practice of science, yeah. uh, think of uh, uh, today we, we think of an, an A380 jumbo jet. And, and think of a, uh, the Red Baron's uh, triple-winged <laughs> Fokker single-engine rotary-engine triplane of World War I. That's the era I belong to. Yeah, I, I must yeah, admit, yeah, I prefer I'm, to be in that than the A380. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing yeah, gets Boeing. Well, you can work on it. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. And, but, uh, you know, the thing that's kept me going in science, really, is because of the enormous revolution we've had in molecular biology mm. over those, these last 20-plus years. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really made such an extraordinary difference because my, my science is all about asking questions about things and in, in, in this case about the immune system and how we yep. handle infection and so forth. And, and just those questions that I was asking back in the 1980s, now we can actually, actually solve because mm. we just have 
incredible technologies. We can take a single cell, and for a while now, um, we've been able to take a single cell, a single anti uh, specific killer T cells. I work on the assassins of the immune system, the killers. Take a single cell, and we can see every gene that's expressed in it now. Mm. Uh, we can see, but now we can actually look at the epigenetic profiles, the regulatory genes that are making uh, uh, one cell in one differentiation state and one in another, even though they might belong to the same lineage. So this is incredible stuff, and that's why I've been still in, I'm still involved so long mm. uh, after beginning in this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you think is um, what do you think's next? I mean, that 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 massive evolution into molecular biology we saw you know just it just changed the game completely over the, over decades yeah. what what's what's the next big game changer you think in these as fields? one of my great he heroes yogi berra said prediction is difficult especially if it's about the future <laughs> <laughs> i think it's very hard to predict where things are going you can make obvious predictions like mm. we're going to know a lot more about cancer genomics and we're going to get more therapeutics and there's going to be improvements in say the checkpoint inhibitor therapy for cancer and we're going to understand how to do that better clinically. There's a lot of things that are, that are kind of incremental at this stage and we can say mm. that we can do better. Transformational, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think particularly, for instance, about fueling jet planes. That, that nobody has come up with a solution or is even coming up with anything remotely approaching a solution to how you make a jet plane go through the air fast over long distances without using uh, uh, jet A gas fuel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it talks about electric planes and hydrogen balloons. I, I, I forget it. I mean, really, it's not not a transformative technology in uh, any sense. Uh, uh, do yeah. you think, I mean, is that a change in the way we go about these things? I mean, I, I, if, if you think back to the, the, the 50s and so forth when the, the mythical sound barrier was being pushed, you know, in the idea yeah. of actually, you know, Chuck Yeager and others, you know, this, this was, some people even thought it was a physical barrier at one point, you know, and actually going through that and then getting well beyond yeah. it and so forth. The engineering was just extraordinarily rapidly changing. Are, are we lacking that now? No, I don't think so. I think, I think the problems we can solve with engineering, we can solve. I mean, the problems with engineering, uh, making planes more fuel efficient, mm. uh, the carbon plane, all sorts of things. Engineering's wonderful. And, and we can solve the engineering problems, but some engineering problems have hit a wall. Mm. And I think the wall is, uh, for instance, jet fuel. And so something other than fossil fuel. So, so the, the walls are there. And one of the things un that's unfortunate is because of our, our enormous success with technology, even though people will say reject the science of climate change, they will expect science to solve the problem. Oh, yeah. And, so, and they'll expect to solve it in a way that doesn't cost them anything, that they don't have to change behaviour, they don't have to change their, their, their practices, and it doesn't cost them more. Yeah. And that is patently absurd. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a pretty common problem. I mean, I, I could bring in religious examples of that that are exactly the same. But do, do you think we will get to a point where through just perhaps sheer force of, of change that's occurring, people will start to realise, well, hey, you know, something's going on here. I mean, we're not, we're not quite there yet, you know. Even, yes. even with the Adelaide storms, well, there was these comments about... It's like, no, no, this is, not, this is not what we're looking at. And you will feel the effects and they'll be big but you're not seeing them... Well, we just, I, 
I've just put solar on the roof of the right. house we've got down at Point Alonso. And it, it, you, it's very interesting. You can, you can monitor it online what it's yeah, doing. Yeah, it's great. And sometimes it's, it's generating a lot and sometimes it's doing nothing. Yeah. And so you have, to, you have to compensate for that. So the transformative technology in that area at the moment is batteries mm. and the improvements in batteries and battery storage. But it's going to be very costly. If we're going to do it all through battery, it's going to be very costly. Um, you can store electricity in various ways. You, you can't store electricity itself yep. in a very effective way, but you can store, uh, you can pump water uphill and let it run downhill, all that sort of thing. Very expensive t- approaches. So either we've got to pay for that or we've got to think of some alternative. We could so- certainly do a lot with energy efficiency, which mm. we're not doing. We're not doing. Yep. And uh, I mean, Tony Abbott had started it. He was giving away uh, LED light bulbs or something. Mm. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. So, I think they still knock at my door every now and then. <laughs> they, they can't see yeah, the one so, out, out the front. <laughs> so we, I, I think each of us as individuals should do what we can if we can afford yep. to do it. And so that's why I've, I've actually put on solar and stuff that doesn't yeah. really economically make sense. But I feel I want to make some sort make of contribution. A contribution. Yeah. Well, it makes it make it economically make sense over the longer term. Yeah, I can yeah. afford to do it. I mean, yeah, yeah. a lot of people can't. Yeah, so. Exactly. Now, yeah. Peter, before we let you go. I just wanted to uh, sort of finish on what you're up to now. Obviously, still working on a, on another another book. You, yes. you, you're ripping them out at a, a good rate at the moment. Um, but you're still in. You're still at the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. You're still hanging around in the lab. You know, do, doing stuff. I'm not hanging around the lab. No, they threw me out of the lab years ago. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slow, inefficient. People would ask me something and I'd forget whatever, whether I'd had a day to be, you know, I've been out of the lab for years. No, but I, I, I help with people with writing up papers. I help in discussion at groups, uh, meetings and stuff. And I'm still on an HMRC program ground as part of the program. Uh, that will come to an end in, in two or three years and that will be the end of that activity for me. But um, I still try to do uh, talk about science to people, talk about evidence and the importance mm. of evidence and looking at looking at things. We don't look at everything through an evidence-based no, prism. I mean, you know, you wouldn't stay married for very long if you no, did. I I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and you'd yeah. certainly never pick anyone up in a bar, that's for sure. Even, <laughs> even Donald, unless you use the Donald Trump technique, um, which is pretty awful. And, uh, and so, so, but I think when it comes to policy, and when it comes to how we spend our tax dollars and how we spend our own dollars, Trying to find out what the evidence is is really a pretty good way to go. And I, I'm afraid that some of our politicians don't even understand what evidence is mm. because they're, they're, they're lawyers. I mean, lawyers are wonderful. I, I have greatest respect for the law. But the way evidence is handled and dealt with in the law is different from the way evidence is handled is dealt with in the real world. The, the, the law is about winning a case. Mm. Science is about finding out what's happening and doing something about it. That's the difference. Yep. And unfortunately, our parliaments are pe- full of people who are winning cases. Mm. And they're very clever with each other, but they're very depressing for the rest of us as of why we are so disillusioned with politics. And when yeah. they start to think about evidence and reality and start to talk in those terms, then we listen to them. Yeah. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on again. Uh, hope we, we, we won't wait 20 years before the next time we have you in the studio. Uh, good luck with uh, the new book. Uh, when, when is uh, Knowledge, Knowledge Wars is out? Oh, Knowledge Wars is out yep. in 2015. Uh, this one will be out hopefully and it'll be September, October next year, I expect. Fantastic. And it's about tourism. Excellent. Well, it sounds like it sounds a little different. A bit, bit it's a bit about scientific tourism, but, you know, or travelling as a scientist with your brain uh, not engaged in the travel, 
but with the science, but you go places and you find out interesting things and you come to some weird conclusions. Sounds great. Yeah. Professor Peter Doherty, Nobel Laureate from the Doherty Institute in the University of Melbourne. You're listening to 3 Triple Arts, Einstein the Go-Go. I'm Dr. Chain. In the studio with us now is Kelly O'Shaughnessy, who is the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Kelly, welcome to Triple R. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Now, we uh, we saw some of the information coming out with regards to Australia only having six years left, which we're going to get to in a moment. But first of all, for those who are not aware of the work of the Australian Conservation Foundation, give us a quick rundown of what you do these days. You've been around for a long time um, and what the, what the goals are. Yeah, well, we're a 50-year-old organisation and we're the National Environment Group. So we speak up and act out and bring people together for the future of our beautiful environment, the rivers and reefs and forests and wildlife that we both love and that give us our life. Hmm. So, so on that, I mean, one of the things I find interesting, especially, you know, we just heard from Peter about you know mm. climate and so forth. With all this focus on climate and CO2, how is everything else going? Because I remember the day, I've often said on air, I don't care about climate change, I care about environmental pollution, yeah. which covers the whole lot. But you know, I remember the days when we used to talk a lot about rivers, yeah. and we just don't now. Yeah. I mean, how's that all going? Well, look, we still do. We're working on the Great Barrier Reef and mm. uh, the Murray-Darling River system and yep. the Great Dividing Range, actually, which is an incredibly important in ecosystem landscape for Australia. Um, the, every environmental indicator in Australia, this is the depressing part, is going backwards. Right. Unfortunately, it's it's not getting better because we're trying. We're really not treating the environment, these rivers and reefs and forests and wildlife, like our lives depend on them. Because ultimately, yeah. they do. Mm. But it just takes so long for something we do today to have an impact on us. It really takes. There's a lag of 10, 20 years, and that's particularly the case in climate change. So we don't really think there's a problem when the science very clearly shows there is. But what we can talk about is also there's a lot of solutions out there we can fix this problem. It's just that we need to get our community, our businesses, and particularly our politicians not sweeping things under the carpet and recognising the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm an ecologist and I'm really interested in these topics. And I guess one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is I wonder if there's a little bit of a hangover from the fact that, you know, 200 years ago, roughly, Europeans mm. settled this country. And obviously there's a huge, a much longer uh, history of the Indigenous mm. people. But um, I still wonder whether we're still thinking like we're Europeans. Yes, And yes. We, we haven't actually accepted that we're in Australia. And if you look at things like, yeah, habitat loss, species extinction, most Australians are completely unaware of what's going on and I think are acting as if, you know, we just arrived here yesterday and it's all okay. So I was wondering whether you still, whether you think, similarly or yeah, whether there's this problem this is a sort of cultural legacy that plays out in an environmental sense. It is absolutely a cultural legacy so when we came to this country we had to beat this country we had to um, if you t listen to all the stories of Burke and Wills and, and the explorers they had to face adversity and beat the bush whereas mm. Indigenous Australians have this beautiful relationship with country and understand that they can utilise it for their lives but they need to do it in a way that keeps regenerating rivers and reefs and forests um, and so we work a lot with Indigenous Australians, particularly up in northern Australia, for what we call the cultural and conservation economy. You can uh, protect the culture, you can develop new economies, new jobs for Indigenous Australians, and also do that by protecting this beautiful place in which we live. Mm. There, there, there has to be an element of it. 
in addition to that that's based on the fact that you know i can i can get in my car in my garage i can drive to work and and get in the car park out of the car park in a lift straight up into my mm. you, and never see a leaf um now in my case you know me and my kids we can't wait to get out of yeah. the city kind of thing but there's there's an entire community that doesn't do that and is not doesn't feel the attachment and the connection is it, i mean is that part of it as well especially in the major cities melbourne sydney you know Canberra, absolutely so yeah. nature deficit disorder is right. uh, a lot of evidence is developing around that uh, if you do any polling will tell you that australians love uh, nature and mm. they will um, enjoy being out there and i do encourage everyone to go and hug a tree it's actually quite a yeah. nice experience or pat it it's a beautiful <laughs> trees are quite lovely um, things to do so everyone by the end of the day go out and hug a tree um but we we do take nature for granted we don't often Mm. look at it it does regenerate our soul there's a lot of information showing that if people are disassociated from nature mental health uh, issues are Mm. greater health issues are greater so uh, we live on one planet and that planet um, gives us everything we need to run an economy to run a society but we should treat the planet like um it's a single planet we have rather than prioritizing an economy that is driving a society not in the way that we want that is ruining Uh, that one single planet. So we're Mm. sort of looking at it from the wrong way around. We're letting the economy drive our lives when we should have economic activities and jobs that fulfil society, that regenerate nature rather than exploit nature. Yeah, agreed. I was reading some research the other day that suggested that by the age of seven, we've either developed a strong affinity for nature and we're willing to go out of our way to protect it or we haven't. Um, what do you think? I mean, if that's true, if we're not capturing people by the age of seven and they're never going to have that deep connection that you were talking about before that obviously Indigenous communities do have, I mean, I don't know I don't know if it's true or not, but it just makes me think, you know, we should be investing every cent we have in bush kinders and, mm-hmm. you know, primary school gardening programs. I mean, what can we do to try and shift the whole centre of, of emotion in our community? I, I am not an expert in this, but the values that people hold um, are from a series of a similar set of values that across all the world and across all cultures and it's amazing how much values that the majority of communities hold for nature and so actually a lot of people do get out when they're younger i grew up in um, a housing development in Kurai, a tough suburb but i still love nature you know we had itchy bomb trees out mm. the front and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't i actually didn't have the experience of most environmentalists of getting out into beautiful forests i didn't even get that opportunity until i was in my 20s um but so i'm i'm i haven't seen that evidence but i do know that majority of people are still love love our environment don't want to see it harmed like it is don't support the types of actions that are currently happening but again um we don't actually see those impacts straight away so we don't think there's a problem when there is a very big problem yeah Yeah. but you play that side a lot when you're a kid though um now uh, one of the reasons we had you uh come in today kelly was to talk about the report that's come out from the stockholm environment institute now of course we're, we're we're signatories to the the paris agreement but can you just give us a quick rundown on what this particular report has said about Australia and, you know, this six-year figure that's been thrown out. So the report says that um, under levels, current levels of pollution, 
Australia has six more years left of pollution, otherwise known as greenhouse emissions, before we ex- exceed our fair share right. of staying below 1.5 degrees. But it's really important to note that that's based on a very, very generous allocation to Australia, and it's only based on a 66% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees. So if I was getting on aeroplane and it only had a 66% chance of getting to the destination, <laughs> I wouldn't get on that aeroplane. I'm not sure about everyone else. So in reality, we actually don't really have the ability to add any more pollution and Mm. terrible things like the Carmichael coal mine up in Queensland will add enormous amount of pollution. So we need to make sure that we don't build any new coal and gas plants, but that also we start transitioning. Well, we accelerate the current transition that's happening from this dirty Um, coal and gas into clean energies. Uh, Unfortunately, in Australia, though, our pollution levels are actually going up. So Mm. despite Malcolm Turnbull and, and the government going to Paris last year and agreeing to this global effort, our emissions are going up when other countries' emissions are starting to reduce. Even China, which we always say in Australia, when China act, we'll act. Well, their emissions have plateaued for the last two years running. Right. And when we look at these these particular numbers, I mean, this is a worst-case scenario kind of boundary we're about to cross. I mean, it's not like we should just yeah. be under it and go, oh, you know, we're, we didn't quite... We didn't quite exceed it. That's that's great. It's actually no. That's really crap too. You know, we really need to be sort of at ten percent of that, don't we? I mean, we've got to scale back a long way. This is kind of the worst end of things that we agreed to. That's right. So look, we have to get to zero levels of net pollution as soon as we can. But if we don't do it by 2050, we'll be in significant trouble as a globe. Mm. Australia will be one of the worst places hit because we already have very variable weather, um, and when you start adding climate change on top of that, it gets quite dangerous. And I should let everyone know, 1.5 degree warmer or 2 degree warmer, people go, well, that's fine, you know, Melbourne's cold. Um, (laughs) But it actually means those um, 47 degree days we had in those terrible bushfires become 50 and 55 degree days a a few times. Um, It it gets quite dangerous. So Mm. it's not, it's a global average, but it actually creates very, very, very dangerous weather. Yeah, take an ice cube and change its temperature by 1.5 degrees, see what happens. Crystal? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so we just had Peter, Professor Peter mm. Doherty in the studio who said, you know, individuals should do what they can. Mm. Um, beyond, you know, the obvious things, and I also feel quite frustrated when I get things that say, turn off your second freezer, and it's like, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello, don't have one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, once you've done all the obvious things, you know, what is it that individuals can do? Like, what is it that we who are concerned about this can do to be part of this larger conversation? Mm. Look, don't think that you're on your own. As I said before, um, the majority of people... Want, action, want clean energy, something like 86, 87% want clean energy. The majority of people don't think our government's doing enough. They want action on climate change. So when governments say that these minority environment groups, they are lying to you because we represent the majority of Australians. So come and join us. Join an environment group or an advocacy group that that stands for your values and um, speak up and act out because the power of us together, the power of the people is greater than the people in power. It was a saying that came out of the Arab Spring and Mm. it's really true but only true if we all come together. So by all means, do your own thing. I did that a long time ago and I'm not perfect like none of us can be perfect Um, but do as much as you can but actually it's the power of us coming together to create change our democracy can create that change, mm. so let's do it. Mm. And I think we know when we're making a positive contribution and when we're making a negative contribution yeah. inherently. We all, just not on everything we do, but on a lot of things we do, you know 
when when you're doing that. So, Kelly, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today, and uh, keep up the good work. And and it's something, as you say, bringing the people together on this is the way to make change. Because the one thing that politicians do care about, about is votes. Indeed. Um, Indeed. <laughs> so it does have a, an impact. Kelly O'Shaughnessy, CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Thanks so much for chatting. Welcome. Three. Triple. Yeah, we love Triple R. It's because they give us a microphone, which is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, no, we love them for other reasons oh, too. Oh, we do, we do, we do. Yeah, but, uh, and they've got good stuff in the fridge. In the studio now we have Jane Kelly. Jane is a PhD candidate from the Department of Animal, Plant and Soil Sciences at La Trobe University. Jane, welcome to Triple R. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's, um, look, it's interesting, we, we keep sort of... Uh, you ended up being a guest because I was out at La Trobe and, and I think your boss might have you know, came up and gave his business card to me. One thing led to another and then, you know, I looked up on the webpage and there was, you know, all this great stuff and then he said, hey, I'm sending Jane. I said, great, that sounds good. I didn't know who you were. Um, <laughs> but you're doing the interesting work. Um, now, you, you work on something called a liver fluke which is one of these flatworm parasites. Tell us a bit about this little bugger. So it's a fasciola hepatica, which we all nicely call liver fluke just to keep it simple. Mm. And um, it's a huge problem within the dairy industry and also in humans in some of the developing countries. And it's got a very unfortunate stage of its life cycle where it burrows around in, within someone for about 10 to 12 weeks, causing uh, lots of scarring and inflammation. And it can lead to deaths in cattle, which is kind of where my research is more focused and okay. looking at identifying it and controlling it better. I, I, I hate to ask this question, but I, I will. How big do these things get? <laughs> yeah, it, this, you are not the first person to ask. And, I, you know, I, I prepared myself. It's like probably about two centimetres long is about as big as they can get. Oh, that's so, okay. So not, not, not <laughs> enormous, but they have a very unfortunate leaf sort of shape, very ovate, and they kind of have like frilly edges. So they're a gross-looking parasite, I've got to admit. Yeah. And, and I mean, how does this thing get spread around? Because it seems to me, I, I always wondered how, you know, these cows kissing or, you know, <laughs> how, how, do, how do these things go from one location, from one farm to another farm or from one cow to another cow? I mean, how do these things get distributed? Oh, parasites are so tricky and just working on them is always very complicated because they've evolved with cows and they've evolved with livestock. So mm. this parasite has adapted to just essentially be on the grass that the cow's going to eat. So right. it goes through a snail which is really important for this it has to go through a snail to be infective without that snail obviously you're not going to have the parasitic problem but if you've got those snails in your channels in your dams where the water's lying on a farm those cysts will then migrate onto the pasture there and then the cows just simply eat it and that's how they get infected okay and typically what's the control mechanism for these i mean what this has obviously been around for a long time so there must be some control mechanism we're using to keep this in, in check? Yeah, so there's we've got a wonder drug essentially and that's been out since 1983 and that has been the be-all, end-all drug for producers and 95% of producers would be using that chemical and that's called trichobenazole, long mm -hmm. name um, but and essentially that's been the staple and now we're getting in a situation where we're finding drug resistance to that drug with okay. the parasites. Mm. So the snail is an intermediate host I'm assuming in its life cycle. I guess I'm curious about animal husbandry as well. So 
is there much work being done to sort of look how you can maybe break down transmission by looking at things like eutrophication of dams? So you have lots of nutrients, so you have a massive snail population, therefore you have a more likely to have um, flukes, you know, going to the cattle. Are they targeting sort of what farmers are doing with their dams as well? So we've got a new project that's just been funded by Dairy Australia and the Gardener Foundation, and that was amounting to about $340,000. And that whole project was looking at ecological controls, controls that aren't reliant on chemical treatments, because in the long term, they're going to get drug resistance to those. So we need to be able to selectively use chemicals when it's 100% necessary, but then look at ecological things on the side. So looking at how we control uh, movement, so where are those cows moving, and can we physically just put a fence? Can we stop them from going into a highly infected area on a farm so they're not going to pick up the infection in the first place? We haven't actually looked at if we can treat the water or do things at that stage, but we're trying to develop new tools which farmers can then take a pasture sample or water sample and actually just determine is it infective and are there parasites there? And that will simplify how farmers can manage their farm to suit this. It's got to be a cane toad that can eat these uh, snails. <laughs> Crystal? It's always quite concerning to me when I hear about the development of drug resistance in um, in any kind of population. Um, so uh, what is how, how common is, is this drug resistance um, at the moment in Australia? Like, how long have we got before, these, the, the, before the chemical tools we have become in, completely ineffective? Yeah, yeah great question. And and um, we have about a 30-year gap between our understanding. So this product came out in 83. Everyone thought it was U-Butte, liver fluke was never going to be a problem again. The first kind of reported case globally was actually in Australia in 95 in sheep. And there was about a 15-year delay, though, until it was first identified in cattle. And that was not until about 2014. So we've got now, we're trying to pick up the game and work out how much resistance is out there. At this stage, we've identified eight, eight properties within Australia that have drug resistance in their cattle. Um, every farm that I've personally gone to test for drug resistance has had it, so that's four out of four. Um, and that is where we are at this moment. And that part of that new project looking at ecological control is trying to work out how extensive resistance is. We simply do not know at this stage. Mm. And, what, and, and what are the consequences of, of cattle who are infected with liver fluke? I'm assuming that it doesn't enter into the human food chain, being that they're liver flukes. Yeah, so no, no cross-contamination by eating a cow and then um, contracting it. That's just a, never going to happen. But the consequences, I suppose, for husbandry practices are that you then are very limited in what treatments that you can use to control this parasite. So there is two other alternative drugs, but they are simply just don't kill that really awful migratory phase of the parasite they only kill the adult stage so the damage has already been done which is why that chemical was the one drug it killed the whole stage within the host but the consequences for the cow itself were quite extensive so you're getting milk production loss um, you know fertility problems uh, weight problems as well and then that flows on into you know uh, you know production and economic problems for the farmer but also it is a welfare concern I mean it's deeply unpleasant to have you know a couple hundred <laughs> parasites burrowing around in your liver you want you want to get that under control. Jeez, that, just that thought just freaks me out. <laughs> so another thing I'm curious about is we're learning more and more about parasites and their association both with humans and other animals. And we know in some cases parasites are actually helpful, they're beneficial, they can help the immune system and so forth. And so obviously in this case the liver fluke is pretty nasty. What about other parasites in cows? And 
if you're targeting liver flukes, do you somehow maybe knock out other ones that may not be so damaging and could even be helpful? Do we know much about that? Look, no. Um, there's not much information in that area, but you know, a lot of the chemicals that we that farmers do use to kill liver fluke have cross-reactivities with other parasites in there and mm-hmm. they do kill them off. Um, but if we just looked at worms within cows, there's a few species that cause similar kind of production problems. Um, but a lot of the chemicals are combined, so you can't just individually sometimes treat for liver fluke. You've got to treat for both parasites at once. So the big issue for us in management is you're then putting selection pressure on the other side, other mm. parasite for drug resistance as well. So it's like a, a double-edged sword. What do you control and what do you risk for resistance? Jane, yeah. Jane often when we see these sorts of problems, especially around farming communities, uh, they're, they're, I've often thought of them as nature's way of re-establishing balance. Uh, is that what's happening here? I mean, it seems to me as though we, we, we overdo it. You know, we have too many cows and too small space, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is that the response that we're getting here or is this something you just see normally in every cow po- natural po- population of these animals or is it sort of do you think it's something that's happening as a result of our practices look it is definitely it has to do with our practices you know we know that if you are in a region that has more than 600 millimeters of rain you're going to be at more at risk and that's because that snail is aquatic so mm-hmm. the more water that you have the more likelihood you're going to have the intermediate host to transmit it right but of course, we irrigate. So we have artificial yeah. irrigation. And so that plays a significant role in determining where those high-risk areas are in Victoria. So my work works solely with irrigated dairy farms, mm. looking at those regions, trying to work out why. Um, but we do have this interesting kind of double standard in which we have irrigated reason, regions that don't now have a problem with liver fluke, and that is particularly around the Goulburn Valley. So for us, it's important to try and understand why this region that fits all the same criteria as the others doesn't have a problem Mm. Um, and that is an area that we're working on and if it's negative for a particular reason can we use that management practice on that farm and apply it to a farm in an irrigated region that does have a significant problem yeah now just finally before we uh we have to end the show do you need farms to kind of uh volunteer to help you out? I mean, what's what do you need from, from the community in that well, regard? Well, at the community at this stage, look, you know, we're, we're working on quantifying where the problem is and, and where we need to focus our research. But there will be a survey coming up about liver fluke <laughs> management cool. practices. And I'd suggest checking out the Latrobe website um, under my boss, Terry Spithel. He has a page there and the survey will be put there in a coming months. So that would great. be great. Fantastic. Jane, thanks so much for chatting to us. You, you have got me excited about liver fluke. So, <laughs> oh, that's uh, good to I hear. You know, I'm still just disgusted by it but it's still a very exciting work um so thanks so much and, and good luck with this work it's obviously very important to many industries in australia and as you say the welfare of the animals involved thank you thanks jane kelly is a phd student from the department of animal plant and soil sciences at latrobe university we are almost out of time and we've got to hand over to an ob so uh, we're going to have to finish up dr ewan thanks so much for coming in today thank you that was a cracking show yeah i was going to say this is a show just for you i think uh, yes i'm a very happy boy <laughs> yeah, yeah. dr jen great to see you I again i can't believe the hour went so fast it did it was awesome yeah it always does you know for some you know when i'm trying to push the buttons and push the right buttons it goes pretty quick for me I'm a bit tired today. Dr. Crystal. Always a pleasure. I actually, I can't wait to um, get the links to go back and listen to that interview, some of those interviews again today. I mean, so much great stuff we talked about. Yeah, just fast forward the bits where you hear your own voice. I I can't (laughs) handle that. I hope everyone appreciates when we put these links up. I have to hear my voice for a few seconds and it's excruciating. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed and uh, we're going to hand over now to uh, the OB for Eat It and have a great Sunday. You've been listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Jablar. Remember, science is everywhere and we will, as are these weird worms, and uh, we will chat to you again in about seven days.
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.